1: And we're going to talk about the latest developments with next-gen aircraft.
0: Also, the Collier Trophy nominees are final, and we'll talk about them.
1: But Ian, what happened to the Beechcraft C90 and the Sovereign Plus?
0: Yeah, it's not good news. Neither is COVID. We're going to look back on a rough year.
1: Are you ready to do some hangar talk today, Ian?
0: Let's do it, David.
1: From AOPA, your freedom to fly.
2: This is Hangar Talk. 1056 turn right heading 130 final
1: 132.4. With your hosts Ian Twombly and David Tullis. This is Hangar Talk.
0: Welcome to Hangar Talk everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. and I'm David Tullis. David, our guest this week, really phenomenal guy, really interesting guy, Victor Viscovo. He's I guess for lack of a better word, an adventurer
1: and an explorer. And we're going to find out what if, what it's like to be at the top of the world and the bottom of the world and climbing all the peaks and all seven continents.
0: Yeah. So, uh, Tom Haynes, again, the boss man comes through, yes. uh, with Thank some more work this, <laughs> this episode. <laughs> so, uh, stay tuned for that, but we're going to start with a new GAO report, the government accountability office, uh, report on flight sharing. Now we talked about this Oh boy, it's probably a couple of months ago now, this idea of, you know, what is sort of fair and legal in the FAA's eyes in terms of sharing expenses. It's been a a, really a point that all pilots trip themselves up on. And the GAO did a report to see how well we understand this now.
1: Well, I think one of the key things for this, Ian, is the fact that there actually was a report and that helps sort things out a little bit because there was a lot of confusion involved. And one of the things as, you know, as, as we do some flight sharing is to basically lay the ground rules. You know, what are they? They are somewhat confusing to folks. And we did a little bit of a dive into this and we found that that the traveling public expects pilots who operate these flight-sharing flights to meet some of the same safety standards as air carriers.
0: That's interesting.
1: Then it's a tough it's a tough hurdle.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So you can see why For example, you know, at the time we talked about, well, it's like, you know, if you go onto Facebook and say, hey, I'm flying here, you want to come with me, why, you know, the FAA doesn't necessarily like that, why they think that's holding out. And it's because apparently there's a perception in the public eye that you're going to be as good as, you know, somebody who flies for United or Delta or something like that.
1: Yeah. And, you know, if you or I uh, pick someone up at the airport, that's a friend of ours or or a family member, and we're going from point A to point B, we're okay sharing expenses. That's no big deal. But if we, and we talked about this, like you said, if we we advertise it on uh, social media, we post it, and we get something a little bit more official about it, then things start transitioning into a very, you know, unclear zone, so to speak. Yeah. So
0: the GAO, in in putting this report together, they interviewed a bunch of stakeholders including AOPA and others including some flight sharing companies so these these are I think mostly web-based companies that exist to want to be a conduit for flight sharing and, and bring the public together with pilots and of course that's not allowed right now but they they the GAO asked okay do you think this was clear guidance and furthermore you know what do you think about flight sharing in general and of course all the flight sharing companies think they should be flight sharing but I was surprised in that a lot of the sort of traditional aviation advocacy organizations, They all pretty much stuck together and said, eh, you know, this is like, we think that the FAA rules are good and they're clear and, you know, the guidance that was put out in the AC is is good guidance.
1: So, where does that leave us as as pilots who are, you know, possibly looking at flight sharing operations, things like that? I don't know.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Read the AC. That's where I would say read the AC. (laughs) Advisory Circular 61-142. Read it. If you have questions, call AOPA. They've gotten lots of questions on it, and will continue to take more. I'm sure. You know, if you've got an aviation attorney you trust, you know, ask him or her. Because yeah, it's you, you got to make sure you are to the letter of of the law as it goes. So,
1: and publishing that ACS was a good step, so that helps clear it out a little bit.
0: That's right. Hey, we want to go to the future a little and give a short roundup of some new technology that we're seeing. That there's a couple of little pieces of, inf- of news that have happened over the past couple of weeks. Everything from electric aircraft to eVTOL to kind of rotable, we'll call them flying car, flying aircraft sort of, you know, rotable aircraft sort of things. So, starting with that, David, the PAL V, this is a European design that is, we'll say, kind of on its way to certification now.
1: This is a pretty interesting aircraft, Ian. It's a gyrocopter and a rotable uh, vehicle. It's a three wheeled vehicle, a tricycle gear three wheel vehicle. And it's interesting because There is a pathway, an EASA pathway, that the company will follow to get that flying car in the air and on the ground in Europe. Now, here's the key: once it's basically gotten its EASA certification, Mm -hmm. generally, and the company said, and I I asked them, the company said that generally, the U.S. follows with the FAA in about in about a year.
0: Yeah, true. After that. Yeah, now you obviously dug into the list a little bit because you wrote the story. This is a really interesting vehicle. Gyrocopters, you know, they're not obviously aerodynamically efficient, I think. So the idea of making it a car and a gyrocopters actually makes a little bit of sense. But one thing that, that really struck me about this, and you too, is, is that it has two engines.
1: It's a dual engine aircraft slash car. And Ian, I, I think the best way to figure this out is that there's, a, there's an engine for the ground and an engine in the air. And hmm. I think that makes a little bit more sense. It's probably good for efficiency. We you, both you and I noted that on the on the ground it looked like in the photos that the that the pusher propeller was removed from the vehicle when yeah. it was rotable. and mm-hmm. that's kind of that's a good idea because it you know thinking about safety on the ground and a rotating propeller behind the aircraft, even though it has that dual rudder, you know, area behind a dual booms back there. But even still, I mean, that's a safety consideration.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The, and so they that whole apparatus, the mast, the main rotor, the prop, the those vertical stabs, all that stuff folds up on top of the car. And, you know, you drive around with this little sort of roof rack of, Aerodynamic bits.
1: Yeah. And it takes, what, five or 10 minutes to convert it from an, an aviation vehicle to a road vehicle.
0: Yeah. It certainly looks cool, I'll say. It
1: is. It is. So there are two 100-horsepower engines for the PAL-V. And let's go ahead and get the price out of the way, Ian. It's $399,000 for the Sport Edition or 599000 for the Pioneer Edition, which adds some hand-laid carbon parts and other niceties. Both of them have have really cool bucket seats. It's a beautiful panel, you know, digital panel. So, yeah, yeah, it's a
0: nice design. So that's the pre-certification price. So I'm gonna. Oh yeah, right. I'll yeah. put five bucks <laughs> on seven hundred fifty thousand and a million for the final price.
1: <laughs> Perhaps, but we'll now see, that right? it we will, and it's been in, it's been in testing for like ten years. Yeah. A, a couple of the quick numbers before we move on to other vehicles. So I think some of them, these are are impressive. You're looking at about a hundred mile an hour cruise speed through the air and on the ground you can get up to 100 miles an hour on the ground now you can you can travel at 100 miles an hour in europe but not generally in the u.s unless you're going to get a ticket yeah on the ground but um you're looking at 6.9 gallons per hour with unleaded fuel and a useful load of about 542 pounds and that gives us a range of about 310 miles with 30 minutes of reserve which is good for you know local trips and all so there's there's some versatility there. And then on the ground, 31 miles a gallon if you're driving on the ground and about 800 miles per tank full.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Hey, moving on to by Aerospace, we'd love to talk about them really rooting for these guys. They're developing the eFlyer 2 and eFlyer 4, the 2 being the 2-seater, the 4 being the 4-seater. 2 is geared really toward flight schools and, and being the first out the door. And they just completed a really interesting test.
1: So the eFlyer Two, which we have been talking about for a while, now let's go ahead and get that price out of the way at four hundred and eighty-nine thousand dollars. That's up quite a bit from when it was originally introduced.
0: Yeah, wow. See, so I was going to put my five bucks on it staying below five hundred, but now I'm going to change that. I think knowing this, I am going to put the five bucks. Let's call it mm, like five ninety-nine special show pricing. 590, 599000 That's I think that's where it's going to end up.
1: And that and that's with um that's basically a, an equivalent of a hundred and fifty horsepower engine. It's a hundred and nineteen kilowatt engine. And the E Flyer two Ian is a is seen as a trainer. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about that, uh, just to remind our our listeners is that this is an aircraft that'll have a, you know, a couple of hours of, of flight endurance and is really designed to be around the airport to, to get people into aviation and train train them.
0: Yeah, short cross countries. yeah.
1: So what happened was the other day, in fact, as we record this earlier this week, the um, aircraft has a whole aircraft parachute. It's actually three parachutes, not one. The Cirrus has one, but it's three parachutes. And there were, there were testing drops involved with the three-parachute system, and they were successful. And the, there was a barrel underneath the three parachutes that basically simulated the weight of an E-Flyer 2. Okay. So it was successful.
0: Yeah, this is an interesting configuration. Yeah, you, that's important. It was successful. I think there's an interesting parachute, you know, sort of configuration. I mean, you know, we, we, I, the, what it immediately made me think of was an Apollo capsule, you know, it right. with the big three clustered parachutes at the top. But I got to wonder, I mean, you look at like the, you know, the Cirrus system with one chute. it's like, I don't know a whole lot about the aerodynamics of and the physics of parachutes, but I would, I would think that the, all the, all the equipment that you need for the chutes, you know, the straps and all that kind of stuff, I would think it would be heavier with tr- with three chutes, but I'm, I'm assuming they've tested that. So.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, but now don't forget now uh, the Cirrus uh, uses a, a, a different system made by a different company. So the, the company that's providing the parachute safety system uh, for the e-flyer line is aviation safety resources. And so, you know, they're just going a little bit different direction, but, the same concept you know adding safety now listen if i'm a parent and i want my my kids to learn about aviation and and if i can reduce that price from we're talking about this off off air but it's about 125 bucks an hour is what the buy folks were thinking a cessna 172 would cost and this e-flyer 2 would reduce that down but you know basically by four fifths down to about 30 30 bucks an hour yeah so if i have that much less of an expense and i have more safety this is starting to look like a win-win situation.
0: Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm excited. Can't wait to can't wait to see those roll out. So, hey, and just before we leave, uh, this quick roundup, we wanted to talk about Joby Aviation for a sec. They're the eVTOL company that you've probably heard about in the mainstream press because they have gotten so much of that. They're going to go public, and so to see kind of where this industry has gotten itself, Joby. There have been estimates that it's worth more than six billion dollars. This company, without really—I mean, you know—they've flown the prototype, but it's like without a marketable product yet. That's that's incredible.
1: They're the heavy heavy hitter, I would say, of this bunch, and you know, with that kind of financing behind it, Ian, I certainly think that the EV tall that they're producing is is set to—I hate to make a pun—but it's definitely set to take off. Yeah, you
0: know? yeah, it really. They is. have
1: the financial backing for that. You know, there's just so many of these EV tall designs out there right now. Surely the best one is gonna, you know, pop up and be the cream of the crop, but there's a lot of investment into this and it seems mm-hmm. like that they're well on on track and on target.
0: Yeah, that's right. Hey, Collier Trophy. Now, they also deal with a lot of future tech, things that are happening right now that they think are sort of landmark influencing the future. And every year, the National Aeronautic Association gives out a trophy to the biggest achievement in aviation and space. It's, uh, past winners have been everything from, you know, Apollo programs to the Cirrus jet and, and many others. And so they've just put out the nominations for the finalists for 2020. And there are a few familiar names on there. So, David, let's go through it. We'll start with the Bell V280 Valor. This is a tilt rotor, a new tilt rotor from Bell. 12,000-pound useful load, deliver 12 troops, 5 to 800 nautical miles, which is really far for a rotocraft, at 280 knots, really fast. So that's a very cool program. Cool-looking airplane, helicopter, rotocraft. It is. I rotor. agree.
1: <laughs> Whatever you want to call it, aircraft. Yeah. Next-gen aviation uh, aircraft device. I'm with you. Yeah. Also on uh, on the Collier Trophy list nominations would be the Boeing Confident Travel Initiative. And this is not something I had a lot of experience with, but it looks like we're looking at how they have worked through the initiative to enhance health safeguards and develop new solutions. Yeah. So we're all more health and safety conscious these days, and uh, that looks like a, a good initiative.
0: And then my pick, the Garmin Autoland. I'm not in the committee, so I say my pick. You know, this is if I were. This is like a, you know, fantasy Collier Trophy. The Garmin Autoland system from Garmin, which is now in the uh, Piper M600, and a few others. So very cool system. We talked extensively about that. So I got my fingers crossed for them.
1: And we're hoping that that uh, trickles down to our, you know, Piper Cherokee Cessna 172 crowd.
0: That's right. Yeah, a couple of years. Yeah.
1: So uh, next on the list would be the Reliable Robotics Remotely Operated Aircraft System. And this is based, it was first demonstrated on, on a Cessna 172, but also is now targeting a larger Cessna 208 Caravan. And it is a robotically controlled Cessna.
0: Yes, very cool. Very cool stuff. Yeah, completely autonomous takeoff to landing. Amazing technology. Next on the list, man, I, I got some good ones here. SpaceX, you got all the good ones. I did, yeah. Falcon 9 <laughs> and Dragon 2, they just lumped them together. You know, the Falcon 9 being the world's first orbital class reusable rocket. And uh, Dragon 2 being the, you know, essentially the, the cargo ship that goes to the space station. So very cool stuff there. If I, had, if I was a betting person, I would bet that SpaceX has got this one. But I don't know. We'll see.
1: Well, speaking of outer space, the U.S. Department of Air Force is a green propellant infusion mission team, which is a mouthful. But nonetheless, Ian, working with uh, NASA, they validated a new type of propellant for spacecraft of all sizes. And we are just talking about SpaceX. So uh, that's kind of interesting. The uh, validation occurred in just over a year of testing following launch on a SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket. So that's something to keep an eye on as you're exploring outer space, keep an eye on being green.
0: Yeah, very cool. Finally, the last nomination is the Yates Electrospace Silent Arrow. The Silent Arrow is a one ton disposable Cargo drone. So obviously, this is like military hardware that we don't cover as much. So I wonder what a disposable cargo drone is.
1: A 2,000 pound disposable yeah. drone. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I don't think we'll ever know what that is, Ian. I don't think you or I will know.
0: I know. And, of course, disposable in military terms is very different from disposable to you and I, right?
1: Well, back in the day, I guess a Mustang P-51 engine was a disposable item.
0: That's right. Yeah, so this can apparently deliver cargo autonomously and, you know, from things like they've done it from a C-130 and from sling loads, from rotocraft. So pretty cool stuff. So we will see. They're going to select in June and announce soon after. And then they said when conditions allow, they will have a formal presentation. So congrats to all the nominees, especially Garmin, and keep an eye out for the winner. We'll talk about that later in the summer. Absolutely. So, David, yeah, moving on, you know, Textron – really some sad news coming out of Wichita this week and that's uh, the end of an era for for some of those aircraft
1: yeah there are two aircraft uh, that will end their era I'm going to talk about one of them the King Air c90s series Ian, which started basically in the mid1960s and it was uh, well renowned for being such a capable aircraft and gave way to the more recent versions of the King air which were the 260. And the three fifty and the most recent the three sixty turboprops, a very capable aircraft, and especially for off you know, unimproved field purposes and in other countries in, in Asia and Africa.
0: Yeah. So really the beginning of, of the King Airline and beginning of the twin turboprop operations there from uh, from Beechcraft. The others from Cessna, that's the Cessna. Sovereign Plus. The Sovereign has been around since 2004, but of course, you know, with the Latitude now in production, deliveries have really dropped off. So that's not entirely surprising. But you know, I mean, there were still, what, six of them last year, which isn't terrible. But uh, but yeah, time to move on to the Latitude there for for Cessna. So sad to see those go, especially the C90. Yeah,
1: the C90 was uh, the stalwart of of the the King Airs, and like we said, it it kind of came out of the the Queen Air you know, it was kind of a beefed up version of that. And it just had a lot of history. And talking about the Citation Sovereign, the, the big thing was, it looked like that the operating costs per hour were really it was starting to price itself out of that market, really.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very true. So also this this week, want to finish up and really just sort of talk about a milestone. And that is a year since uh, COVID came to the States and, and things really shut down and the world changed, especially the aviation world. And, you know, just to reflect a little bit, David, I think you know we've seen a lot of a lot of good uh, work from people uh, come out of this. A lot of uh, people helping each other, helping the community, and obviously a, a ton of, of pain for families and and most recently for AOPA's family.
1: Yeah, we lost one of our our most uh, our most esteemed colleagues, Mike Collins. He was a, a good friend of mine for a number of years, and Ian, y'all worked together at AOPA Pilot Magazine for a really long time as well. Yeah, and yeah, uh,
0: yeah about 13 years.
1: Yeah, we, we were sad to lose Mike, and he really was a good contributor to um, the division I work in, the e-media division, and he just had a great way dealing with people and with his cameras. Uh, he was a longtime photojournalist, so um, we do miss him. And you know, Ian, we started talking about COVID-19 almost exactly one year ago, when the folks at, at Phoenix Aviation in uh, Atlanta evacuated some people from overseas. This is when the cruise ships first learned that they had that they had some kind of a mystery illness. And um, you know, our first story was written uh, on March 5th. And then we have a coronavirus impact page, a coronavirus COVID-19 impact page on our website at APA.org. And it really, Ian, it covers everything, including the good deeds that we've done, um, you know, GA pilots are delivering and making PPE supplies for healthcare professionals, as well as rules and regulations that we need to uh, abide by, and especially when we're going from one country to another.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the, the good work. I mean, we've talked many times on the show over the past year about what the manufacturers have done, what individual pilots have done. You know, most recently, one thing we haven't talked about, CAP, you know, they've been involved in, in uh, shuttling vaccines around the country so some really incredible stories, but I, you know, obviously for us, this, this uh, anniversary ends on a sad note because of our colleague, Mike, you're right. We worked together for 13, maybe 14 years and he was my boss at one point. I was his boss at one point, you know, so we got to know each other pretty well. And he's uh, just a, a great guy. It was a really phenomenal person with the kind of person who stopped in the side of the road to help people, you know, the kind of person who would, you know, there was new employees who came to AOPA who tell stories about how they'd get this email from Mike and it'd be like, Hey, here's all the spots you got to try in town to eat or drink or whatever. And he just did that, you know, just because he was looking out for folks and, and very strong family man was really dedicated to his wife and kids and. So it's a really, it's a sad story for us. And so it, it you know, it hit us close to home. Like it has a lot of folks around the country and around the world this year.
1: It hit me really hard, especially Ian, because uh, Mike and I would spend many evening closing up the AOPA office, you know, two in the fat talking about aviation, photography, the news business, things like that. I, I want to share one super quick story. I know we're short for time, but. I had run out of money basically because my uh, my wife's car uh, engine blew up and needed a replacement car here in Frederick. And I located a Saturn, a used Saturn View uh, SUV. And uh, Mike had a Saturn View SUV that he basically drove the wheels off of. Uh, he would tell anyone who listened that he was never going to get rid of that car. Well, he eventually did. But anyway, he met me on a Saturday morning in the rain to look at a Saturn view that I was looking at purchasing. And he gave me a thumbs up for that car. It got me going for the next few months. It, it gave my daughter her initial driver's training. And uh, so his legacy lives on in some of the kind things that he did for other people. And we, he will be sorely, sorely missed.
0: Yes, yes, very much so. So yeah, get vaccinated. Let's get ourselves out of this thing and, and hopefully move on to better things. Speaking of that, I want to bring on Victor Vescovo, uh, an incredible guy. He's been all around the world. Like you said, to the top, to the bottom, he's seen it all and just had quite a life.
3: Today is uh, Victor Vescovo and, and let me just do a, a little bit of setup so Victor you know give me a moment here okay uh, so 20 years in the US Navy Reserves as an intelligence officer a bachelor's degree from Stanford a master's from MIT and Harvard what a soccer um, co-founder of private equity uh, private equity company called it um, insight equity holdings and speaks six languages okay so just a little bit of setup of who Victor is but he's also an explorer who has completed the Explorer's Grand Slam, climbing the highest peaks on all continents and skied the last degree of latitude on both poles, the North and the South Poles. And then just uh, more recently has developed uh, this program called the Five Deeps. And to do that, you've designed a deep diving submersible, probably the most advanced one ever built, able to withstand Eight tons per square inch, and I saw uh, an author that you've worked with reference that as like putting 292 fully fueled Boeing 747s on top of the submersible. And then you took it to the bottom of all five of the world's oceans, including the deepest place on earth, uh, Challenger Deep, and the Pacific Ocean's Mariana Trench at 35,853 feet. So Having climbed to the top of Mount Everest at 29,029 feet and been to the bottom of the ocean at the deepest point, you've literally been top to bottom on the planet and to both poles. So let let me just say, the one thing that seems like maybe there's a thread there between all of those different adventures is aviation in that I'm guessing that having access to an airplane like your Phenom 100, for example, uh, and maybe even some of the skills that you learned as a pilot have played a role in helping you achieve some of these uh, adventures. Is that fair?
2: Oh, absolutely. And by the way, thank you very much uh, for the time and uh, being able to speak to the AOPA community, which I hold in extremely high regard as a member for um, decades. So, thank you. Uh, but they, yeah, of course. It's a, it's a great and wonderful organization, and uh, I love all the periodicals that you produce. It's just a wonderful community. Uh, but to answer your question, absolutely. The skills that I learned as a pilot when I was 19 years old, uh, flying at a flying club at Palo Alto, California near Stanford, flying in a Cessna 150, that's where I got my license, my right. private, and then uh, moved on from there to where I'm now doing you know, turbine uh, helicopters and jets and, and now submersibles. But the discipline that one learns in becoming a pilot and the procedure driven nature that you have to have to be a good pilot was absolutely essential in helping me succeed, not just in flying but and in, in submarines, but also in mountain climbing expeditions or polar expeditions. I've referred many people to the kind of the saying that all these things are very different, but they sure as heck rhyme a lot. And by that, I mean the same process of doing your diligence about preparing yourself, looking at the weather, looking at the equipment that you'll have, being careful, being deliberate, making decisions with incomplete information under high stress, those are all very common things. And I think it allowed me to be successful. I view my training as a pilot as absolutely essential to being able to achieve the things that I did. Mm -hmm.
3: So you learned to fly at 19 in a flying club, Um, but I presume you probably were in school in that time and, and plus a very busy life since. How have you managed to Uh, advance through your flying and uh, to stay current, I mean, flying, getting phenom and type ratings and annual recurrency and all that sort of thing. How do you do
2: that? Well, for a while there, I think like many pilots, I ran out of money as a youngster. And so in my early 20s, I was going towards my instrument rating and it was more expensive than I thought. And I ran out of money. Uh, So I kind of lapsed for about 10 years until I started making a bit more and I really missed flying. And then uh, I got my instrument rating and then I was interested in helicopters. But uh, it basically comes down to you do the things that you prioritize in your life. That's really at least how I've lived. And if you really want to fly, if you really want to get that rating, like these other things I've done, climbing a mountain or anything else, you just have to make the mental commitment and then to follow it through against the obstacles that inevitably come into our paths when life in general takes hold, whether it's business or personal or anything else. So... People out there that have the ratings, that uh, keep up with their flying, they've just made a personal commitment. And that's what you have to do. And that's what I've done, especially over the last five or 10 years. And it has been very important to be able to do all these expeditions to actually be able to, at a moment's notice, get in the plane and go where I need to go.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm
3: -hmm. So you've checked a lot of boxes in life. Um, Are there
2: still things in aviation that interest you that are still left to be explored? Well, despite the rocket that blew up in uh, South Texas yesterday, I am very interested in going into space. I would love to do that. That's uh, the one thing I, I haven't done. I'd love to see the Earth from orbit. So I think there are a couple of commercial enterprises that are getting us very close to that, where we can buy a ticket. And so hopefully that'll come to pass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and do you have uh,
3: particular druthers on one of those? And how likely do you think that's going to uh, occur? How quickly might that occur?
2: I think it's going to be pretty likely, because I think they're going through all the steps with the FAA and through the testing that they are going to have those uh, vehicles, whether it's in a year or in 10 years. I think it's somewhere in that window. And we will see people regularly getting access to space because the drive and the money is there, as well as the willingness of the federal authorities to approve these things, which didn't seem to be the case maybe 10 or 20 years ago. So very much looking forward to it. While at the same time, I still continue to own and operate my submersible and we're still planning trips all around the world to dive to new places that have never had a man visit. Yep, okay. So,
3: I mean, you've spent a lot of resources, especially on your ocean explorations, um, usually with a scientific mission behind it. And meanwhile, in the aviation world, people have spent millions of dollars owning and collecting rare and unusual aircraft. Does that interest you? Is there any part of aviation like that, that that you would find attractive?
2: I love the old aircraft. I love military history. So I love all the aircraft that have served throughout any number of conflicts. And, and the people that uh, flew them, just incredibly brave given the instrumentation that they had compared to what we have now. now. I mean, no GPS or anything like that. But I'm very interested in the aircraft, but not necessarily owning one, because I think if you own a vintage aircraft, half or more of your time is just spent finding parts or proper maintenance of the vehicles and i have enough things going on in my life that i think that would drop off and if you can't fly them uh, i don't think it's it's really fun just to have them sitting in a hangar uh, yeah, at least for me personally right
3: so you mentioned you've owned a, a helicopter uh, until i guess fairly recently you have the phenom any mm-hmm. other airplanes and how do you use the airplanes is it uh, local or regional transportation are you using for for business or for personal or a combination?
2: A little bit of everything. Uh, within about 300 350 miles, the helicopter, living here in metropolitan Dallas was always really convenient because I have my own hangar only 10 minutes from where I live. So I could just get in there and go to a friend's ranch or go to a business. Like going down to Austin, sometimes taking the helicopter was faster than actually getting in an aircraft. But if it's longer, of course, having a turbine aircraft uh, with that speed is, is just great. and It can hold, you know, six or seven people in comfort. Uh, and then I also, for training, I'll continue to fly, you know, Cessna 172s, or I'll fly lately a Diamond 42. I just mm-hmm. recently got my commercial rating, and I did that in the Diamond, which is a great aircraft. Really enjoyed flying that. So it just depends on the mission, and yeah. you know, getting the right platform for each mission.
3: Sounds like you're you're really hooked and enjoying uh, general aviation flying. Absolutely.
2: I've, in fact, uh, I think my. Uh, uh, my girlfriend actually mentioned to me. She said, uh, "I really like it, the daisy go flying, because when you come back, you're happy the rest of the day." <laughs> well,
3: that's great. Um, I- I've heard you say that one of your objectives on your exploration missions is to have to be to have it be boring. Uh, don't like excitement on those kind of adventures. You uh, want to die at home in bed, for example. I think uh, I heard you basically say to Brian Gumble in a recent interview. How does that relate to your strategy regarding
2: flying? Well, I think it's like so many uh, pilots. I think we all strive to have that perfect flight where everything goes perfectly and we never miss a single thing, which from an outsider would look like a boring flight. But I think that's what we all strive to be. You know, heroism and drama may look good on television, but I know any pilot that's sitting out there watching this knows when you actually have a real emergency or real situation, you kind of maybe wish you want to be somewhere else. It's not something you look forward to. And so we should always strive as I do on all my expeditions, whether it's climbing a mountain or diving in the deep ocean, I try and take care of all the details. So it is indeed a by the numbers, boring expedition. I I don't strive to be an involuntary test pilot. Okay.
3: Um, So you've done very well in business uh, with your business opportunities and investing and and that sort of thing. And so putting that hat on for a moment and you've looked for opportunities out there to take advantage of, what are we missing in aviation what, what are the opportunities that you see in aviation that you wish somebody would step in and take on?
2: Well wow, that's a, a good question and, and a tough one there's so many aspects of aviation and not just the aircraft that everybody focuses on I know some of the most difficult things that people face as an aircraft owner is how to find a hangar and have it be you know reasonably priced in terms of the maintenance of that hangar or the dues or anything else you pay how to get access to good mechanics that are reliable yeah are not going to miss things. So you don't, you know, worry in the back of your mind that something's going to fail. All the support infrastructure could be better served, but it's difficult because, uh, you know, having good mechanics requires a certain pipeline of people that are willing to do that type of work. I actually think the aviation community is well served by the avionics uh, producers, because that's such a a high visibility thing that we all love to play with and experiment with, but it's the more boring and mundane things that you often deal with in real businesses that are kind of the friction points in general aviation. Maintenance, hangarage, spare parts availability, insurance is a huge one as well. And with the accidents, particularly in the rotorcraft area has proven remarkably difficult to get good affordable insurance. Those are the things that give a lot of headaches that we need more support in. Mm-hmm. You've done a lot with
3: technology, particularly uh, uh, in your adventures and that sort of thing. A lot of us who are pilots and aircraft owners, you mentioned flying a 172. I mean, it's got uh, a propulsion system in it that uh, dates back uh, to the 20s.
2: Do you see opportunities there? There's always room for improvement in technology, and I'm agnostic. I think people always sometimes are attracted to the newest and the sexiest type of technology. But have no doubt that the internal combustion engine still has some long legs to it it's a very tried and true device and it keeps getting improved year after year with more electronics fuel injection different fuels all that type of thing so it's about just whatever suits the right mission and i know people are excited about electric aircraft i am as well but there will always be a place for certain technologies for certain missions and i think that the business community is going to be well served by continuing to invest in making things incrementally better over time Mm
3: -hmm. So there we talked about this a little bit, but but there is a lot of risk in your exploration and the missions that you've taken on and, and also in your business ventures, different kind of risk, but still risk. You seem to manage that well. You're alive to talk about it after having been to some of the most inhospitable places on or under the planet. So what advice do you have for pilots when it comes to managing risk?
2: Oh, the key is to never be complacent. And you've got to check your ego at the door. Those are the two biggest threats to our safety and those who fly with us or do things with us that I have personally seen. And when one gets complacent, one misses the details. And it's the details that can kill you, you know, the so-called Swiss cheese model of safety. It's a very, very real thing. And the second is our own egos. And I, for example, I climbed Mount Everest, but I didn't do it on the first try. I trained for a year, I spent an enormous amount of resources to get there, but halfway up I got frostbite on my hands, and even though I had the ability to push through and maybe do it, I might have lost some of my digits or I might have endangered some of my climbing companions. You just have to look at it objectively and say, the right decision is X. Even if it's absolutely what you don't want to do, you have to have the discipline of really being conservative because the mountains the sky the airport it's not going anywhere there's nothing worth damaging yourself or damaging other people or heaven forbid you know losing your life on some of these missions there will always be another time and people have to check their ego at the door thinking I'll be a failure if I don't you can't have that mentality and make it to a ripe old age doing the kind of things at least that I've been doing yeah I think for young people anyone who has even the smallest inclination that they think they might want to be a pilot I can't strongly enough emphasize that maybe you should do that. Do a discovery flight. Take a couple of lessons because the lessons that you learn by the act of becoming a pilot will serve you so well in any discipline. It requires you to be organized, to be thorough, to check details, to make good decisions with imperfect information. These are all skills that are essential for being a good manager and a good leader. And therefore I think it's great if uh, young people are interested in aviation to do whatever you can to get the money or the resources so you can actually become a pilot and then have that self-confidence that also comes from.
3: Let me ask you about the the new book uh, by Josh Young, Expedition Deep Ocean, The First Descent to the Bottom of All Five Oceans. How'd that come about?
2: Well, when we started thinking about this expedition, my expedition leader who handled all the logistics and the permitting, he said, you know, you really should have someone jot down the details of what's happening as this occurs. We had no idea if it was actually going to succeed or not. It always looks easy in retrospect, but I took his advice and I actually contacted this New York Times bestselling author and he was actually intrigued by the project. And so he was embedded with our organization for over two years, watching everything as it happened. And he actually said it was the most difficult book he'd ever written because he didn't know how it was going to end. And so fortunately it did work out despite a lot of uh, misses and some other issues that came up. But the book shows the good, the bad, and the ugly of everything that happened on all dimensions. And the thing—the one thing I insisted that he do is that you make it accurate. And sometimes I don't come across the best way, sometimes other people don't, sometimes we have great victories, but it's an accurate retelling of what happened.
3: Good, well, I'll look forward to reading that. Thank you, Victor, for, for taking the time to talk with us today and sharing what your experiences are and your aviation point of view, very helpful. Thank you very much.
0: David, I was joking, you know, this this was a video interview initially, and I was joking that m- what was most impressive to me about him was his hair. I, I envied his hair. He's got to, you know, he's if you're going to be an adventurer, I feel like you got to have a ponytail, and he's got it.
1: Yeah, he's got the look. <laughs> and, and, you know, he, he's, he came across as such a nice guy during the interview when he, when he was talking to Tom. And, listen, th- he's got real chops. And uh, not, not only that, but uh, learning uh, aviation and, and being a pilot really set him up for a lot of his leadership roles, and uh, the fact that he mentioned that, and uh, Tom was really interesting as well. But uh, Kali, the Five Deeps expedition that that he's part of, uh, the world's first manned expeditions to the deepest point in each of the five oceans. I mean, wow!
0: Amazing stuff. Yeah. Incredible. Well, hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twomley. Our editor is Austin Hansen.
1: and I'm David Tulas. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org/hangertalk, and you can also get us wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple or via Google. And you can even maybe ask Alexa to play uh, Hangar Talk for you at some time.
0: All right, we'll see you next time, David. See you. Hangar Talk
1: from AOPA: Your Freedom to Fly.